Hello, everyone. You're listening to Battle Red Radio. This afternoon, I'm joined by Mike Meltzer to review an all-time beautiful Texans loss to the Miami Dolphins, uh, one of which where they scored nine points after forcing five turnovers. This is the first time that's happened since 2006 when the Arizona Cardinals did that in 9-22 loss to the Oakland Raiders, and that was a Cardinals team that had Matt Liner at quarterback and Edwin James at running back. And uh, that kind of exemplifies like how silly and unusual this uh, very silly Texans game was. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing well. It's weird, Matt, because I watched this whole game. I'm not going to lie. I actually flipped to red zone with the people I was with once the Texans, uh, once they had the Jordan Akins overturn, I was like, all right, this game's done. Yeah. I, I caught that weird thing that happened at the end, like afterwards. But like, I watched this whole game and yet I'm like, wait, they got five turnovers and only scored nine points. Like how, <laughs> how did that, I was watching this game and I still don't know exactly how that happened. Yeah. I'm, I'm like sitting here trying to piece together all nine. And I yes. think I remember four of them because it was <laughs> such a long game too. And there are yep. so many of them that's hard to remember all of them of the nine. Which one was your favorite today? Oh God! Which one was my, was my favorite turnover? Um, well, I think it, I think <laughs> I think that the Tyrod flipping it because I the, the Tyrod flipping it, Jerome Baker somehow staying in bounds because honestly that was one of those plays where once Tyrod flipped it, I like turned away from the screen because I assumed that he kind of like flipped it like way out of bounds, and then I came back and I see like the the, the Dolphins players doing that whole like getting in the photo thing that people are mm-hmm. on defense are now obsessed. I'm like. What the hell did I miss? I thought he threw the ball away. Like, what did I miss here? And they showed the replay, and I'm like, is this going to be one of those things where he stepped out of bounds, and so it's going to be, uh, it, it's not going to hold up as a, as a pick, but then that was not the case. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, the way David Culley was talking after the game, like, it sounds like they were not happy with Tyrod's performance, and so that would be, that would be probably my my favorite one, I think. Yeah, I agree with that, too, and something similar happened to me also, where I was making a pot of chili with the game on the on the counter and yeah. switching back and forth, like in between, you know, every play or whatever, just kind of the joy of football that, you know, you can take time off in between plays too. And uh, like I was like, oh, he threw it away and turned away and missed it. Actually, happened live. I was like, wait, what? What happened there? And there was like confusion. Like Tara Taylor yep. just like looked so dissident too, and and helpless after that play happened. I was like, yeah, I guess it is a turnover and. You know, you see the defense celebrating. It's something that you mentioned the like team celebration. I don't like it personally, and the like if it was a big play, I understand it. But like every single time it happens, to act every like time, that. and especially whenever you're down by like 24 points, they do it yes. too. Like I get well, celebrating your wins, but it's absurd to me. The Saints yeah. are notorious for it. The Saints celebrate every single one of them. They love that. Yeah, Demario Davis, all those guys. But it's like you know how we've clearly gotten to a point. I think in football where. 
if you're the team that's trailing by a lot, these guys will kind of calm down on on if they get a first down in the second half or they score a touchdown. They're not going to celebrate too much. They'll just kind of like slap five, like kind of nod, nothing big. But like it seems to not apply to the defensive turnover. Like <laughs> you can you can you could be down like 24-3. You'll get like a turnover and like it'll be run back to like the 50. And these guys are like running all the way to, to the end of the yeah. field, getting their snapshot. I'm like, what the hell is going on? You're still down by 21 points. Stop it. And even touchdowns too. If the team's up by like 28 and they score a touch to make it 35, you know, whatever. Like the Rams, yep. they went up 38-0 against Houston. They weren't really celebrating that one that made 38. They're like, yeah, all right, we did it, you yeah, know. Yeah. But if they force a turnover, you up at up by 38 points, it's an entirely different story. Very true. I think the other weird thing about these turnovers too is that a lot of them were from deflected passes. And you know, Miami's yeah. kind, of, kind of a weird scheme where you know they show a lot of a gap pressure and they drop back and you don't know who's going to come and who doesn't and the edge rushes and they just like deflect a lot of passes at the line of scrimmage that you know force ones in the air too and I feel like two or three of them were from that but uh, you know it's hard to remember I know whenever I watch the film on Tuesday I'm gonna make a collage of all the turnovers from this game and uh, that should be fun. I think it's a do. good idea. Yeah, it should be fun to do. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a wise idea. Um, boy, this was a this was a barn burner. Like I I've kind of had this feeling. Like I, I thought the Dolphins would win because they are a better bad team than the Texans are. But I'm watching this game and and I know that it's it's you know Jacoby Brissett instead of Tua. Uh, and as far as I can tell, the only thing Jacoby Brissett does well is not get tackled. Um, <laughs> he's pretty he's pretty hard to bring down actually. Yeah. But like I'm watching that Matt and I'm like God this this Dolphins team is is not a good football team. Like this team has had a trillion draft picks since 2020. Um, I know it's only two drafts, but like this is not, and I know there are guys injured, you know, there's no Parker, there's no Will Fuller, but like, this is not a good outfit right now on the other side either. Yeah. That was what, it, uh, I think I thought you put that they're a better bad team, you know, in that sense so yeah. like the Dolphins this year have at least lost some close games. Unlike Houston who have just been, you know, obliterated week in, week out, you know, they lost by three to Jacksonville, London, they lost by two to Atlanta. They lost by three to Vegas in overtime. They've been blown out too, but like at last least they've week, won some close games, you know? Yeah. I mean, last week they lost by 15, but that game was a 3-3 game in Buffalo in the third quarter. I think maybe even late into mm -hmm. the third quarter. So they will they will be competing with teams uh, most of the time. Yeah. And and like I I picked Houston win this game because I thought they had the better quarterback. And, okay. you know, we saw how that went too in this one, especially with two being out because I've watched those Brissett games. that like The one against Indy was just you know, abomination. It's a bad pass defense as well, too. And so, like, somehow, like, do you think the Texans are worse than you, than you thought they were entering this game after how they performed in this 17-9 loss? Are they worse than I thought they were? It's a great question. God, this is such a weird situation to analyze. Like, I mean, first of all, if you give up 17 points in any NFL game, that is a game you should win. Mm -hmm. Like, period. You, you give up, I don't care who it is, like, you give up 17 points, that's a game you should win. You give, us, you give up 17 points and you force, again, was it five turnovers? You force five turnovers like you need to be winning that game. So I thought defensively, even though the Texans are not a good defensive team, obviously, but I thought they, 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 I thought they held up okay relative to my standards. It's just that, like, are they better than I thought? Like, not really. Um, there are moments here and there, like, I thought early – on the first drive before Tyrod just threw it up for whatever reason for the interception, I'm yeah. like, okay, it clearly looks better with Tyrod in as opposed to uh, Davis Mills. But then you go through this game and you're like, 
I can't break down film nearly as well as Matt Weston can, but it's pretty clear that Miami is going to blitz Tyrod a lot, and they're going to do it on third downs. So, like, why the hell are there not one or two routes that are quick blitz beaters in those spots? Like, that's something that I know, and I know that it's it's more complicated than that. But like, but I, I heard this even on the post game show, Matt, driving back home, like, you know discussion about how guys are running double moves when there are blitzes coming like that's not going to work unless your pass protection is perfect on the blitz pickup which is never going to happen given the state of this offensive line so my long my too long answer to your question is like are they worse than I thought like I I I suppose um I I think the I think the Texans are the worst team in the league I I believe that I think the Lions are better I'm just not sure the Lions will actually win a game (laughs) yeah football's kind of messed up in that way See, I know for me, like, I thought they would win this game, uh, like, after what we saw with Tyrod Taylor earlier in the year where they were, like, you know, confident, and it's a defense that they force turnovers, that's the only way they can get stops because, you know, they have a bad defense on on down-to-down, and I wish we had, like, a statistic that really captured down-to-down defense and removed all turnovers because it's kind of a fluky stat, and Mm -hmm. kind of like, and that's why, like, they're such high, you know, very, very, there's such a high variance in defensive performance year to year. It's, be, it's because they include turnovers in those statistics. And whenever turnovers are as fluky as they are year to year, that's why you have that occur. But like this team can't get stops unless they force turnovers. They forced nine in this game. And with Tyrod Taylor coming back and losing 19 to seven, I mean, I, I thought they were like the 29th worst team. And now I think there's kind of no doubt that they're 32nd. And, uh, and like it really is, you know, incredible that they've lost in this fashion in this way, considering everything that went their way to still lose like they did. Yeah, the the Texans are definitely a a game script team like most teams in the league are. And so I think this is one of those games where, like, if they had been able to cash in on a field goal instead of the pick early, uh, then I think they have a bigger chance in this game. Like, I don't know what you thought about Cully uh, kicking the field goal when they were down by 11. Yeah, fourth and goal. And you're at the one-yard line. It's terrible. Yeah, it's one of those things where like I'm I'm I don't even know if I'm like definitively like they should go for it because I'm convinced they're not going to get it. But at the same time, like the, the math indicates you absolutely should go for it. And I almost feel like and we've seen this, Matt, a couple times this year where they will do the most conservative thing because they feel like it's going to avoid some kind of blowout. Mm-hmm. And they were not blown out today, but like they will do the conservative thing and then they'll still lose in the same exact fashion, no matter what they would have done in that particular decision yeah it's a funny way to put it and and the thing these like coaches always forget about going for him fourth and goal you're at the one yard line so one thing is field position yep. so now the Dolphins have the ball at the one yard line so even if you don't get it and you know you get a stop or you get you get one first down you still probably get the ball like around midfield and then the second thing too is the other team can score the ball too <laughs> like once you like mm-hmm. you kick a field goal this idea is like oh it's a one possession game but they always forget about the fact that the other team can score too. Like Miami didn't score after that happened, but they forget that that aspect of you know the equation of it too. But like I thought it was a terrible decision. And if you're gonna lose a game and you're one yard short, like you should lose if you can't get a yard. Like if the game comes down to it, you should lose. Yep. And also like if you're gonna kick the field goal, I don't know why coaches don't do this more often. Kick the field goal when it's a forty seven yard field goal and the ball's at the thirty yard line and there's seven and a half minutes left. If you're going to make it a one-score game, make it a one-score mm. game then because now you have two or three position, possessions available to you. You don't have to waste your timeouts. You get another chance to score the touchdown if you're going to go for it like that because instead you waste all this time 
You yep. waste all these plays just to get down the one-yard line, kick the field goal anyways. And so I understand that if you're going to take a conservative approach. The conservative, the true conservative approach is kick the field goal as soon as you're in field goal range, save your time, <laughs> yeah. save your possessions, and then go for the touchdown a little bit later on once you're happy that you're one score short finally. I would love to know what they what they think internally about what happened today. Like I would love to know if yeah. David Cull- – this is what I'm always fascinated by. Like what did David Culley think – uh, you know, behind closed doors about this game. What did Nick Casario think closed doors behind this game? Like they probably had a a better sense of whether Tua would play or not than we did. I don't know how much of a difference that makes. I think the line went from six and a half. Yeah, it was six and a half. I think it may have down, gone down to like four, maybe even lower than that. I need to double check on that. But it it, it definitely went down like an appreciable amount. But I, I, I would be curious. Yeah, it, it finished at Dolphins minus four. That's crazy. Um, so I guess the the people in Vegas felt like with the health situation as it was for both sides that mm-hmm. Miami was like a, a basically a point better than Houston, whereas I think they're probably a couple points better just looking on balance of the season. Yeah, when we did our picks this week, I picked Houston because it was six and a half. I thought six and a half was an absurd line for two teams that were as close as I thought <laughs> they were. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would like to know more about what Nick Asira thinks about this David Coley season because he hired David Coley. He yep. wanted him to be here. He was the culture fit that they all wanted. Um, you know, Steph kind of said it pretty well in our like super podcast about the culture of the team, where she thought it was like super demeaning to David Coley. Say, well, we didn't want X's and O's, and X's and not X's and O's. That's a college party, you know. And X's and O's uh, head coach. We wanted a guy make you want th- make you want to run through a brick wall instead. And like this is what you hired a guy who's been bad in four down decisions bad at managing the clock, bad at when, when to take penalties, um, you know, keeping Tim Kelly over as like a half-hour appeasement for Deshaun Watson. And yes. now like, you have these games where these same like very basic decisions are being missed over and over and over again. Like, I wonder what he thinks about the decision to hire David Kelly, David Coley now at this point, how this team is, uh, has performed this year. Yeah, it fascinates me too because it, it, it appears to me, Matt, like a couple things have happened. Number one, I mean, I've heard that different coaches turn them down, like different prospective head coaches. So that that's obviously that's something that Nick would know definitively that I have just heard about. So it's not like David Culley was the first choice. Second thing, and this has really dawned on me the last week or so, if they were going to do it this way, like have a caretaker coach to kind of like rebuild the culture and kind of tie things over for a year or two, I know it takes two to tango, but why didn't they hire Jim Caldwell? Yeah. Because – Jim Caldwell is somebody who, compared to David Culley especially, is a super accomplished coach. I mean, mm-hmm. pretty accomplished. He's won a conference. He's coached in a Super Bowl. He's coached both in college and the NFL. He was the last you know, reasonably successful Detroit Lions coach, and he has a legitimate football resume. I think Caldwell – was he the OC, I think, in Baltimore when they uh, when they won the Super Bowl with Flacco? I think I, – I, I forget that. Uh, maybe I'm getting my, my get years right. Fast. Yeah. So, but he – but Jim Caldwell is somebody who has like – a really legitimate football resume, and he's not a, the guy who's going to get a job, a head coaching job anywhere else. So whatever their goals may have been, Matt, in having David Culley as head coach, wouldn't that have been accomplished by hiring somebody like Jim Caldwell, who at least brings a legitimate resume to the table? Yeah, I can. Now, I completely agree. You know? Yeah, and now, that's an interesting idea, too. It's like, that's what the lines of Dan Campbell, but they kind of got like the anti-Matt Patricia. And yes. I think when the Texans got the anti-Bill Bryan, David Coley, but if you're going to go that route, I think Jeff Jim Caldwell would have been, you know, a better head coach than that. And like you mentioned about his, you know, what he did in Detroit, where he's the only guy to even like get Detroit to a playoffs 
um, you know, since Barry Sanders was the running back there. But yeah, Caldwell was the OC in Baltimore in 2012 and yep. 2013. And I guess they went to the Super Bowl in 2012. Yeah, they won. That's when they won the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they and they had the whole deep passing attack, and Flacco turned into Joe Montana in the postseason. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is a guy who's won the Super Bowl as a coach twice, not as a head coach, obviously. But like now, again, I don't know if if Jim Caldwell would have taken this job. But now we're in a spot where, and I don't want to be like too negative necessarily, but we are. A little bit more than halfway through the season, you know, the Texans dropped to what? They dropped to one and eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's nine. So what do we have? Eight more games of this left? Like what's going to happen at the head coach position uh, at the end of all of this? Like, are they going to be in the head coaching market after this season? Is Cully going to come back next year? Um, if they're looking for a new head coach for whatever reason, is it an attractive job? Um, but back to your question. Yeah, like <sighs> – I am pretty negative about the overall situation and and the culture stuff and whether the Texans truly have their head in the sand about what's going on. But even if I were to remove all of that and just take this season sort of at face value, I'd be looking at this and wondering, like, what am I getting out of my coaching staff? Like, what is what is David Culley bringing to the table uh, that is appreciably helping this team and this franchise? I do not know the answer to that. Well, he did tell Mark Ingram that he loved him very much. Yes. And then they were able to flip Mark Ingram for a 2024 seventh-round pick. And that love made Mark Ingram run harder in Houston, which led to them getting a 2024 seventh-round pick. So that's something that we can actually put value on as far as the David Cole yes. experience goes. Um, well, we had a question here from at the other chip, and he asked, will Cole be replaced this offseason? And also going off that too, do you think there's a chance that David Coley's fired uh, sometime before the, the before the end of the 2021 season. Uh, fired before the end of the season would shock me. I don't think that I don't think that's going to happen. I think that would be that would be way too aggressive of, of a move. I think what I could see is maybe Coley steps away after the season if he's just tired of dealing with this. Um, I know there was some Josh McDaniels talk this week, which I don't know where, where exactly that came from. Um, it just feels I, I, inevitable. I think is where it comes from. It's it's weird, Matt, because like ordinarily, first of all, the national media still has not explained to me why Josh McDaniels turned down the Indianapolis job. Like nobody has actually yeah. written that story, and in a way that makes sense. Like the bar is now so low that, and I, I we, you and I have joked about Gerard Mayo. Like I thought the worst case scenario last year was hiring Mayo, but now I'm like, no offense to Cully, but like when it comes to football coaches, I am an ageist. Like yes. Like I you're hiring a first time head coach who's basically at retirement age who you are selling as a culture guy and not a scheme and not a scheme X's and O's guy. I am going to, in my mind, exhibit some age discrimination on that basis because I'm like, you can't turn this around immediately. It's going to take a couple of years minimum. And by that time, he's 67, 68 years old. And he is not based on his resume. One of these coaches who's been passed up on a lot like a, you know, Bruce Arians mm-hmm. kind of guy. So I and therefore, while the idea of hiring Josh McDaniels for most organizations would be like, oh, boy, that's a dangerous road to go on. Like Josh McDaniels has an infinitely better football resume than David Culley. Like Gerard Mayo would be more interesting because Gerard Mayo's my age. So like inherently like he's he's our age, like inherently would be more interesting to watch this team with a coach who's way younger. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree, too. And one thing that I memory hold which has happened like a lot because there have been so many outrageous things that have happened you know, to this franchise since the Laramie Tunsil trade occurred. 
that the Texans fired Bill O'Brien early in the season with the idea that, well, we'll be out ahead the head coaching search, only yep. to be the team to make the to make the last decision to hire their head coach after all that. So they were the first team to fire their head coach, the last team to hire head coach. And then one they went with was somebody who wasn't on you know, anybody's radar at all whatsoever. I don't think they'll fire Coley at the end of this year. Going into the season, I didn't think there was a chance that they would fire him after the season. But now just like like the mistakes they're making are just so like bare minimum for the NFL. Like I mean, even even high school coaches don't make the mistakes that David well, Coley's been making for in game strategy uh, portion of it. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this because I because you watch the film, so you're you're looking at this team at a very deep level compared to almost all of us. You mentioned Cully's coaching. Like, what stands out to you that he is not doing in his capacity? Well, I mean, not thinking about like all the in-game stuff. I think a lot of it, like on the offense side of the ball. Like, if you watch today, the fact that they start a new center who's never played before, they bench Max Sharping and put Justin McCray there, and they do this against a team with Tyrod Taylor first coming back that does a lot of like interior a-gap blitzes. Uh, blitz. They have the third highest blitz rate, but they were 31st in pressure rate entering this game as well too. And by putting Morrissey out there, like you watch this game and there's just over and over again, he's sliding the wrong way. Or like that one pressure they gave to Raekwon Davis, a good example. He slides right, the, uh, the left side of the offensive line slides one gap left. He should have the A gap, it's a free rusher. And that sort of thing happened throughout today's game. Or you have like a blitz off the right-hand side and you see McCray with his back turned to the the uh, the defensive tackle and now the ends looping through for in- easy pass rush and so I don't understand changing it up like that much even though I don't think sharpening has been very good um, and like you mentioned like throwing hot instead of throwing double moves I didn't see the double moves portion of it but throwing hot against the blitz is something else too I think yep. they failed Davis Mills and that entire experience I think like also the fact that they didn't run like a real true pro style offense for Davis Mills and only had five route combinations they actually really ran it all, is either because Mills was atrocious in practice or because they didn't trust him. But whichever way, they didn't get a good feel for him at all because they didn't allow him to do things like throw the ball down the sideline. And when they did that, they were down 38-7 to the Los Angeles Rams that uh, Sean Cooks. And the run game, also, like this is a team that wanted to be good at running the football, that thought they finally had a good offensive line. They tried being an outside zone team, which didn't make any sense with the talent they had. It failed. And they've tried to run every single run play imaginable now, and none of it works. Like against the Rams, they ran inside zone, didn't work. They ran mid zone, didn't work. They ran pin and pull plays, it didn't work. They ran, you know, power and trap with Tyus Howard, and that worked a little bit, but the play side double team just never got to the second level. And they ran do, and it didn't work. And so they've tried some things, but none of it has worked. But I just think, like, the fact that they haven't had, like, a cohesive offensive game plan. Um, you know, aside from the Jacksonville game where the Jaguars couldn't pass off bunch sets and man coverage, mm-hmm. which is like very elementary thing to do. That was the only good thing they've done really in offense this year, you know? And, and what I wonder about is how much does David Culley really control any of the things that you mm-hmm. mentioned? You know, because it seems to me that heading into this season, the Texans were running this operation where the head coach is kind of the CEO the out, the offense has been outsourced to Tim Kelly and, and Pep Hamilton, a combination thereof. The defense has obviously been outsourced to Lovey Smith. Um, and so these things that you mentioned, like the blitzes, throwing hot against the blitz, the offensive line changes. I wonder how much of that is actually in David Culley's purview, which I know is a ludicrous question because he's the head yeah. coach of the team. But then that kind of circles back to my earlier point, which is <laughs> if he's not involved in this, then like what exactly is he providing 
for this team mm -hmm. that moving forward, you're like, okay, he adds this, this, and this, and therefore we're in fine shape moving forward to build this football team. Yeah, and I mean, we joked around the offseason. It was, well, he's here to provide orange slices, and you want to sit next mm -hmm. to him at the pizza buffet after the game. And I think that's part of it. Like in a rebuild, you want to have a, a coach who can keep morale high was the idea with that, like officially mean, mean their rebuild. And then also doing things that actively go against a rebuilding football team, like restructuring contracts and giving snaps to older players and that sort of thing. Um, but like even just like the in-game decisions have been so bad and so elementary that I don't think Coley will be here after this season now. But yeah, like I agree. I don't think he's going to be fired so, mid-season though either. Okay. So you've reached the point, Matt, where you think that Cully will not be the head coach next year. I don't think you can. Okay. Just and, in and terms of it? Yeah, I think part of it too, it's like, look at the veterans they signed this offseason. You know, Malik Collins and Cameron Gregor Hill, I think, are the only two guys who have played their way into having a second contract or, okay. a con like, or like a, a decent contract with another team. But if you go down the list of the guys they signed, none of them have been put in, like very few of them have been put in a good position this year. They've been playing out position. They've been playing a bad defense. Their tape is poor. And it's like if you're looking for a team as a free agent, you don't want to go to Houston because now you're in the swamp and you're not mm -hmm. going to be able to like get that next contract out of it, which is kind of the idea for a lot of these guys. And so I think for like also that reason alone, I either have trouble finding talent next offseason too if they keep Cole around as well. So I keep thinking about this, Matt, in terms of – I keep thinking about the number 22, which is the number of starters every NFL team has, obviously – and it's, the my next time, it's my favorite Jim Carrey movie, number 22. <laughs> number 22. So when you look at the Texans, right? So the next time they play a game that actually matters, uh, it seems like that's more likely 2023 than 2022. Mm -hmm. Like you're never going to have in a salary cap era 22 star players. You're hoping to have as many good players as possible among that 22. In this season in 2021, when I'm thinking about the 22 starting football players the Texans are eventually going to have, in the next game they play that matters. How many of those 22 spots have been filled based on what's happened this season? I almost feel like you've lost Justin Reed off of that 22. You probably may have lost Titus Howard. The only guy who may have played himself onto that 22 would be John Grenard, maybe a Nico Collins, I suppose, because he's so young on the first year of a rookie deal. But it feels to me that this, like, I mean, you have, you probably have a really good sense of this too, but like, I don't know if I've seen a roster that is this depleted when I look at things moving forward. Like it almost feels to me, and I know they'll get extra draft picks from the eventual Deshaun Watson trade, but it almost feels to me like they're going to need like three full drafts just to kind of stabilize where this roster actually is. Yeah. Am I overstating it? What do you think? I, I mean, it's really like what it comes. What, the only thing that the only thing that matters this season is what they get for Deshaun Watson. And yep. like if they and like they nail the Watson trade, and I just don't mean like maximize the value for Watson, which is going to be difficult to do with the allegations still you know, ensuing. But they have to nail the value, and then they have to hit all the draft picks off of it. And if they yep. do that, like rebuilds in the NFL can be short; they could be good. Or like be like a, a like an exciting team maybe in 2024. But also that means they hit on the quarterback position, and like something like that that quickly could occur. But you know that's a big if, you know. And we've seen teams like the Miami Dolphins today who have made the right decision, who made the trade, who got the draft capital, who yep. rebuilt the right way, but you don't have the picks, and now you're just still kind of you're stuck for an another year as well, too. And so I really think that comes down to it. But yeah, like based on what you just said, I don't see any cornerstone players on this team right now. I think Jonathan Grenard's a Whitney Merciless sort of player. Like he's a yep. he's a good third best player in your front seven. If you have good interior pressure, 
and he's he can be his pass rushes work well, and he's a good run defender as a six technique in a over defense. But like aside from that, I don't see, I don't see like anybody who you can build a team around. And like going off of what you just said too about there being twenty two stars in an NFL team with the salary cap, the NFL is built around you're really good at, at two or three things, yep. and these are the things that you're great at doing. And now the, the your weaknesses have to be overshadowed by your strength, and those are the areas where you don't spin. And like the best example is Russell Wilson, the Seahawks. He's so good at making guys miss. He's so good at evading sacks. He's so good at playing against the pressure that your offensive line doesn't become as important with Russell Wilson. And now you're able to you know, invest in pass rusher or pass catcher or the defensive side of the ball, and the offensive line's not important. But as he's gotten older, it's kind of switched around. But that's sort of like frame says how you have to build an NFL team. And so for the Texans, it's like they just need to find cornerstone players. They need yes. to find top players they can build a team around. And right now they have absolutely zero of those guys right now. I think you're right. I think there are zero foundational players of an NFL team. I think there are some guys who could be around, whether that's, you know, like you mentioned, Grenard, Nico Collins, if they re-sign Malik Collins. But there are no, like, foundational players on this team. I'm curious what they do what they do with Tunsil long term. I'm just really fascinated by what this offseason upcoming is going to look like, because you're right. The obvious thing is, what do they get from Desha- for Deshaun? Um, but, like, how does Nick Casario play it? Last year in the in this past offseason, he played it exactly the opposite of the way I would have done it. He had this, you know, weird scheme where he signed like 30 guys to a one year to one year deals, brought in a million players. What is what is it going to look like philosophically from him this upcoming offseason? Because I, I do think th- they're kind of doing a little bit halfway, but I, I think there have been some slightly encouraging signs the last couple of weeks. Um, the decision to cut Vernon Hargraves, the decision to get rid of a couple of guys here and there to kind of move on. Um, has indicated I think they have a a better sense for where they are as a team. Now, it's not going to be fully because, like, you're starting Tyrod Taylor on Sunday and not Davis Mills. But, like, I I can sort of understand that. I think they're they're getting a little better sense of, like, all right, we need to start playing more young guys on this team. Even, like, the Ingram trade, I think, was logically, even if they got nothing for him. But I'm just really interested interested by how Casario – philosophically approaches this offseason and what the selling point is. Yeah, yeah, and I think also like the selling point is to young talent too. You know, I've, some people ask me, I think not last, yeah, last week, I, you know, I, I talked to some people about why his offseason was bad, you know, and it's like, well, what young players could you have signed? It's like, yeah, you signed Larry Ogunjobi instead of Malik Collins. You signed Anthony Walker instead yep. of Christian Kirksey. You know, there's all, you sign you know, Cam Sims instead of Chris Conley. Like, there's always players that you can sign who are 25, 26 years old instead of 29 years old. Somebody like John Ross. Like, if I were the Texans... Yeah, that, like, great like, idea. Yes, like, Daryl Morey had this fascination with, like, failed first-round draft picks. Mm-hmm. And I would have approached the, this thing the same way if I was Casario. I would have been bringing in as many, like, failed, like, busts, guys who were drafted highly because you hit on one or two of those guys and that helps you moving forward. And then the other part that was really was illogical was uh, bringing in a really small undrafted class. Mm-hmm. I know it's undrafted free agency after a COVID year. It's very strange, but I would have brought in like 15 of those guys, 20 of those guys, yeah. because if you hit on one of them or two of them, then it makes all the difference with a team that's in this situation. And I got some blowback from it last week. And this is not the biggest deal in the world, but it's something that is symbolic to me. So Casario makes that ill-fated Shaq Lawson trade and <laughs> Shaq Lawson made a huge play and the Jets went over uh, Cincinnati mm-hmm. and I tweeted it and like there were I'm not going to say who said it because I like this person a lot. But after the Shaq Lawson trade, 
to the Jets in training camp. There was a comment made by somebody that, well, Shaq Lawson basically, you could read between the lines, he dogged in training camp, was kind of working himself into shape. And the comment was, well, the Texans don't have time for somebody to do that. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, all right, maybe Shaq Lawson's a dog. This doesn't matter long term. Who cares? It's Shaq Lawson. But it's more of the concept of like time is all they have. Yeah. Like they have tons of time. We have all the time in the world because mm-hmm. like like th- there's no urgency to, to win here. So I, I just thought that that mindset was was very peculiar <laughs> and it was very it was it was kind of strange to me. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. That's that's incredible. Uh, and like Lawson, like I didn't like the Lawson train necessarily because I'm also like I love Bernard McKinney. He's better than Zach Cunningham ever was. You know, he was a vital aspect of those defenses. You know, I made that joke, like, his hands look like this, covered in calluses and stuff. So, yeah. Zach Cunningham's going to be really pretty while he just chasing tack from the backside. Uh, but, like, if, if I don't know the extent of his shoulder injury. He signed with the Giants. You know, I haven't watched him play just yet. But, um, but like, trading for Lawson, I didn't necessarily like because I didn't think Lawson was a very good player. But cutting Lawson, or you know, trading Lawson for a fifth-round pick, I thought was kind of, you know, peculiar as well, too. And, like, they had all the time in the world to do so. I mean, like, Lawson's not the guy who you want to be your best pass rusher, yes. which is what he was giving me in Houston. You want him to be, like, your third best pass rusher. And that's again, goes back to the fact of this team doesn't have any cornerstone players at all. And that's the direct result of not having a first-round draft pick in 2021 or 2020 because you decided to trade for Laramie Tunsil. And these are the ramifications from that. I, I still think that the, the Tunsil deal was an awful, awful trade. And some people argue that that to me today. And I just think that they like they're, they're like, listen, people can have different opinions on things. But on this one, I I believe I am 100 percent correct, 100 percent correct on it. Like, it's just I, I think people just genuinely the people who think that trade is a good trade just do not fundamentally 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 get it. Because what I think and what's nuanced about it, Matt, is that when when you trade draft picks, a lot of them for a player, there, there are really two components to it. One is the draft pick value, and then there's what the other team does with the picks, whether you're trading them away or receiving them. I think people look and they're like, well, Miami hasn't done enough with those picks, therefore that somehow justifies the trade, which is completely incorrect. It's the wrong way to look at it, and I thought it was flawed from the get-go, and I've said this like five or six times, but if the Texans that offseason, coming off that Colts playoff loss, were determined like, hey, we need to add a star left tackle. You need to make that decision by January 21st. Mm-hmm. Like you need to have a solid process. And if they target Laramie Tunsil, you need to make that trade in the early part of the league year where you make sure to kind of front load the draft picks that you give up. Yeah, to. You, ma- you make that trade for the draft picks that year. That year. Of two years later. Yep. You make it that year, which I think limits the downside. You also, it helps create an overall offseason strategy of, mm-hmm. hey, if we're going to trade for Laramie Tunsil, you know what? Let's franchise Clowney and trade him for as much as possible right now, mm-hmm. get draft pick compensation to make up for what's going to be outgoing. We need to do all of this in March and April before that draft. If they had done that, the process would have at least made sense. Instead, it was like, hey, let's try this Matt whole Khalil. Matt Khalil let's sign Matt, Let's sign yeah. Matt Khalil and then hide him from the media because he's so yes. bad in practice and he's our left yeah. tackle. And then act like the media is a bunch of jackasses for <laughs> questioning it when they knew what was going on. And then they decide, like, all right, we're going to trade. We're going to basically give up 200 cents on the dollar for Laramie Tunsil. It just like it just it, it's a terrible way to run a football team. And it has, in effect, made this 2021 season basically a complete waste of time. Mm-hmm. Now, 
I don't know what would have happened in 2019 and 20 if they didn't have Laramie Tunsil at somebody and had somebody else playing left tackle. I don't know. But if the records were what they were, then it would have been really interesting to see amidst all the Deshaun thing stuff. Like if they had the number three pick in the draft this past year, like they could have just taken Trey Lance and from a selling the organization standpoint, they could have been like, all right, we took a quarterback, we'll trade Deshaun at some point, and we have moved on to where at least we hope they have, we have that part answered. Yeah. But the fact that they gave up that first-round pick and the second-round pick in 2021 as well, it just completely murdered this season. Like, mm-hmm. it just murdered this season. Yeah, I completely agree. And, like, I mean, if we want to talk about Miami real fast, too, because I think it's kind of an example of the model the Texans are about to follow with the Deshaun yep. Watson trade. And, you know, you can look back. Like, the Texans did not trade... Laramie Tunsil for, you know, for Tua, for Austin Jackson, and, you know, for her, I'll go through the picks here in a second. They didn't trade Laramie Tunsil for the picks that the, the Dolphins used for him, you know? Yes. They trade Laramie Tunsil for two first-round picks and a second-round pick. Yes. And so, like, looking at Brian Flores' time in Miami, his first year, before they made the Tunsil trade, they took Christian Wilkins, who is a star in defensive end in the NFL, a 3-4 technique, who's a pretty good pass rusher, who's great against the run. Michael Dider, who's bad, he got benched already. Andrew Van Ginkle, who always makes plays. Isaiah Prince, who's in the league. Chandler Cox, who's in the league. And Miles Gaskin in the seventh round, who's their current first running back, who's a pretty good um, pass catcher. 2020, they take two of fifth overall. With the Texans draft pick, they end up taking Austin Jackson. They took Noah, I can't say his last name. Igbenogany. Yeah, Igbenogany. 30th overall, he finally played against... uh, against Jacksonville and against Atlanta, could not stay on top of routes at all whatsoever. It was the, it was the Jacksonville game where he was especially atrocious. Could not cover Marvin Jones at all. Drafted Robert Hunt, who's an actual and offensive lineman, the only one they have. Raekwon Davis, who's a fine nose tackle. And the, and this was one for Tua, one for Jackson, one for Noah, two for Robert, two for Raekwon, uh, a third on Brandon Jones, who hasn't played for him at all, a fourth on Solomon Kinley, who hasn't played for him at all, a fifth on Jason Stowbridge hasn't played for him at all. A fifth on Chris Weaver hasn't played for him at all. A sixth for Blake Fergus who hasn't played for him at all. And a seventh on Malcolm Perry who hasn't played for him at all. In this past year, with two ones, they drafted Jalen Waddell and Jalen Phillips. They made the decision to trade back up in the draft after trading down to draft Jalen Waddell, kind of making a Laramie Tunsil sort of decision by yes. trading uh, their first-round pick for Waddell, thinking they're going to be good this year, and they're currently you know 2-7 and seven at the moment. They drafted Javon Hall in the second round. Liam Eichenberg in the second round, Hunter Long in the third round, Lanier Coleman in the seventh, and Jared Dokes in the seventh. Um, Wall has been really good this year. I think Phillips is a good edge defender in a 3-4 defense. Holland's been a really good, you know. He's been a good pick. Yeah, deep middle defender. Eichenberg, I don't think, has been very good, but it's still his first year, and like he's a big guy. Long hasn't played at all, but it's like, this is still like a lot of young talent, and a lot of things can change with it. And maybe even though like two has been injury prone, that sort of thing, Austin Jackson's a bust. Um, they still made the right decision by trading Minka, who didn't want to be here, and by Agreed. trading Laramie Tunsil to try like build this team out. And like regardless of what the Texans do with their draft picks, like maximizing value, trading Watson, collecting draft picks on the road is the way to go, regardless of whatever happens in the draft itself. And that's it- just on Nick Casario at that point. And I think that you we can expand, Matt, the conversation to look at the other bad teams in the NFL because I think that these other bad teams do have almost all of them foundational players somewhere on the roster. Like for Miami, I guess that would be uh, Jalen Waddell. Um, I think that would be 
you know, Wilkins is solid. Um, they, I, I think Holland was a really good pick in, in this, in the second round out of Oregon. They still have the good cornerbacks, even though they're, they're older guys. Yeah, I think Byron, in, Byron seems like he's hitting the wall, but I think Xavier can still yeah. be good for a few more years. Like you look at the, all right, the lions haven't won a game. Okay. They're, they're in bad shape. And the fact that there's no quarterback to pick number one really hurts them because of the golf thing. But like they have Deandre Swift, they have Penny Sewell. Uh, they've got Taylor Decker. Uh, like they have some Jerry players. Jackson's on, been good this year too. Yeah, like, and, you know, I, I think they had a big injury with, uh, I think they had a pass rusher who went down. Oh, a Quora. Quora really yeah, who on. people like, like people like Frank him and, Ragnar. Him like, and Carl Lawson were like 1A, 1B pass rushers and both got yes. hurt for the entirety of this year. Yeah, like the, the Jets are a bad team. And obviously the Zach Wilson things is a big deal. But like they have foundational pieces, I think, like Quentin Williams, Elijah Vera Tucker. I love Vera Tucker. I still owe you a, a highlight clip of, of Vera Tucker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they, they have some players, you know, up and down these rosters uh, where you look at the Texans and, and we're sitting here and we're like, I, like, I think we're going to laugh in a couple of years that we're like sitting here desperate to get Scotty Phillips carries, right? It's like, hysterical. It's, it's hilarious. Like, and, and I think we know that like Scotty Phillips is probably not the answer, but it's more just that like, Matt, you, you can watch random NFL games like that Cleveland game a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night against the Broncos and some Dearness Williams characters out there. And you're like, how, in, like, this is, if I could ask Nick Casario one random specific question, it would be. Why do you have the running back room that you have? Yeah, because I, like, I, like like that, <laughs> it, like in any like it, he was citing all these business things this week, right? Like Pinterest almost buying, uh, what was it? PayPal almost buying Pinterest mm-hmm. and like Dell. I'm like, seriously, if you read those business books, which I've read some of, and I'm guessing you probably have too, like those books would not advise you to have the kind of running back room that they have. Like this is a position in the NFL that has a huge supply that players decline very quickly. Why the hell do you have all these old guys at that? Like I like Dell would not have this running back room. Uh, PayPal would not have the running back room. The Texans have these companies. It'd be like would Netflix. Not build own, it this it'd be way. like if Netflix was owning Blockbuster still because they like the yes. brand name of Rex Burkhead. You know, exactly, like that's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah, yes. I I understand like the David Johnson thing too. Like I. I didn't like the idea of hiring Nick Casario, you know, because this whole Patriots connection, because they failed to have him two years or the summer of 2000, I guess 19, 19 is what it is now. Um, like that whole thing just stunk to me, you know, and I didn't want to go through this whole Patriots thing. I was like, well, I'll be open to it. And then as soon as they kept David Johnson, instead of just outright cutting him, restructuring to help out the cap a little bit. I was like, it's the same thing all over again this year. Mm-hmm. You know, like definitely Jack Eastby has some influence if, and they're keeping a key Jack Eastby player that they you know, signed two years ago. But, and also going back to restructuring Laramie Tunsil too. Like there's still some like funk there within the organization. But yeah, like having an expensive locker room with David Johnson, who's been terrible. Burkhead, who's been terrible. Uh, Phil Lindsay, who's been terrible. And Mark Ingram, who at Gosh. 33 was somehow the best running back on the team. That was the only one who could break tackles at all whatsoever. Is insane. And they have one of the highest expensive, uh, one of the highest running back groups in the NFL for a 1-8 in eight team where that position's very expendable. You can find guys anywhere. And it's also a, a, a position group based around youth where you can find guys like Ernest Johnson and that sort of thing. But yeah, the Scotty Phillips thing is just based entirely on the philosophy of Scotty Phillips. Not necessarily uh, Scotty Phillips is going to be the next Arian Foster. It's just mm-hmm. the idea behind it, you know? Yeah, it's the idea of, okay... The running backs ahead of him are never going to be here when the Texans are playing important games. So we're basically wasting time with these other guys. And I, I guess I, I have to admit, like I, I kind of I was kind of intrigued by what 
uh, Casario was doing in Marshall. I was like, okay, okay. Philip Lindsay had one or two good seasons. Like this makes sense. But it's like it, it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to have like a bunch of these guys. It would make it would have made sense to sign Mark Ingram or Philip Lindsay mm-hmm. or restructure David Johnson or bring in Rex Burkhead. It makes very little sense given that they knew this team would not be good. <laughs> To bring back all of them, or I should say sign and bring back all of them into one running back room. It's just, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. It doesn't at all whatsoever. Um, And it's like all three of those guys haven't been good at all. Like they've just all been bad. You know, like it's kind of fun watching Phil Lindsay again today, try and bounce every single run outside (laughs) the box where he doesn't have the speed to outrun defensive backs, but he just has to do it. It never, it doesn't matter what the hole looks like. He has to bounce outside the box. Um, You know, circling back here, the other thing I want to talk to you about was the 2018 Texans draft class. Because we're at the point now where Max Sharping's been benched for Justin McCray. Lion Johnson Jr. is benched this week for Eric Murray. Tyus Howard's playing left guard where he's been bad at all all season long after moving him from right tackle where he was a really good pass protector but had problems in the run game. Um, This was the last draft class the Texans had where they had any sort of draft capital whatsoever. And now we're at the spot where they're three draft picks within, you know, the top 50 picks of the draft. Two of them have been benched. Two of them, both of them may not be on the team next season. And Tyus Howard's playing opposition as well, too. Like, I don't, I, I know that Laramie Tunsil Trey was a failure, but I think the 2018 draft class was just as much of a failure, or the 2019 draft class, I should say, was just as much of a failure because of it working in congruence with the Laramie Tunsil trade later on that offseason as well, too. I think it's a fair point. I'm curious what, what Brian Gain and Bill O'Brien would, would think about this, if you could get them to you know, think about it honestly and answer honestly. Um, I mean, Titus Howard, I think, made a lot of sense as a pick. I think that is that one is exclusively on Nick Casario. You've written about this ad nauseum, in a, and I say that in a good way. Like Titus has promise at right tackle. Uh, to me, what I would do in the offseason, I mean, I, I do it now. I would just move him to right tackle and just reconfigure the offensive line. Sharping looks like he's soft. Um, that's just my sense on it. You probably have a much better idea than I do, but that's just what I've – that's a combination of watching him and hearing some of the things about him that I've heard off the field. Uh, Lonnie Johnson, you know, he seemed like he was – he was one of these classic, like, all right, we see some traits in him at Kentucky that we like. We're not sure if he's a corner or a safety and they played him at corner, didn't work so well. They moved to the safety, but I, which I didn't object to. I think Rivers and McCown and I were both like, okay, he looks like he could be just physically uh, a decent safety, maybe somebody who's aggressive who can tackle. But I would put it this way. They've moved him from corner to safety, and I wonder if another organization would have been able to do that better with Lonnie than the Texans have been able to. That's what I would say about that one. Like in a better situation with a better team, with the better with better defensive coaching, not just 2021, but the last two years, would that would a would a better organization have figured out what to do with Lonnie Johnson? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting idea. And like, I mean, I know like Lonnie, he was bad in Kentucky. Like he wasn't a good cornerback there at all. But he was drafted based on traits. You know, he's stronger, he's taller. He, mm-hmm. he like he scored very well athletically. It's like, well, you're going to teach this guy how to play whatever position you're going to teach him. And they, he was an outside corner Kentucky. He goes to Houston. He's in the slot. He had that one play on Travis Kelsey. That was a holding call they didn't call. And the yeah. Texans won because of that play. Yeah. Then he gets benched. Then he goes to safety last year where he had no feel for the position. The new coaching staff comes in, keeps him at safety where he still has no feel for the position. And he can't tackle, and he's you know saying main, mean things to John McClain on the internet, and now oh, he's it. been benched completely, you know, and like I like, and it's weird too, because I always thought, well, if Lonnie's gonna play corner in the NFL, which I, it has to be like a cover three scheme, 
or a cover two scheme. And okay. what have the Texans done this year? They play cover two and they play cover three. Mm-hmm. And he's playing safety where he has no feel for it at all whatsoever. And like I think his entire career in Houston's kind of lost and over with. But like going back to Johnson Jr. is the same thing they did with Titus Howard. He's a left tackle in college. He goes to Houston, gets starts off at right guard, moves to right tackle. Now he's at left guard. Max Sharping was a tackle at Northern Illinois, uh, where Pro Football Focus loved him because he didn't give up any pressures, but he had no NFL pass at all whatsoever. <laughs> and a quick quick passing offense where he just like turned sideways over and over again. <laughs> yeah. He moves to guard where he never gained enough weight to play guard all whatsoever. And so your three picks are all three guys playing out of position for a team that has never developed young talent at all whatsoever. You know, it's like I didn't think Johnson Jr. or Sharping were gonna be good necessarily. My like my heart was open yeah. for Howard because there was no video of him at all whatsoever. But they just it's an organization that's had problems with those guys to begin with, with young talent, getting them in a good spot and coaching them. And now we're here three years later, two of them have been benched, one has been awful out of position. And I would I would assume Sharping and Johnson Jr. are on the team next year as well, too. Well, I'm not so sure. I think Lonnie's probably gone, if I had to guess. Sharping, I think probably also. I think I think Howard's back because they picked up the option, and I just think that they need to, you know, obviously see what they have in him in 2022. Mm-hmm. But it, it's one of those things where it, it kind of goes back to process and, like, should the fans trust in what they're doing? And I know we're mixing regimes, so it might be unfair, but, like, you know, maybe – on all NFL teams, this would have happened to Max Sharping and Lonnie Johnson. Very possible. Um, let's just take the draft. Let's go from like drafting them to what they are now. But it certainly seems like as far as developments, they have not put these guys in the best position to, su- to succeed. So it makes it hard to like really analyze. Is it just that they drafted the wrong players or is there a huge development component here uh, that was missing with these guys? Yeah. And I mean, yeah, and who knows? And that's kind of like, I don't know. It's weird because there's just like a a black hole for all the Texans' young talent, you know, during the Bill O'Brien era after Rick Smith left, you know. Aside from Justin Reed, they haven't really developed anybody at all whatsoever. And like Greenard has, but he like came to in a different regime altogether as well. But yeah, like, I mean, just looking at this draft class, this is the last time they had high draft capital. All three of them aren't playing very well at all. Um, I do think they keep Tyus Howard for another year, and I'm just like praying every single week that we get the announcement that Howard's going to play right tackle again. Agreed. Just because of you know how out of position he was. And the Marcus Can trade was ridiculous then. It's still ridiculous now. It was a ridiculous trade. A- asinine trade. Yeah, and like I also don't understand why. It's like the Justin Britt thing, too, and like with Tyrod Taylor. How can you be surprised when an older injury-prone player gets injured? You know, they didn't have a backup center on this team. They kept mm-hmm. Justin Brin like, oh, yeah, he's it, and that's all we need. Had no <laughs> backup plan for him. Same with Tyrod Taylor putting Davis Mills out there too early. And the can thing was similar to Sal last year because of COVID. Was hurt the year before that. We had surgery entering the training camp. Um, really, the only thing they did is they took on his, his salary because they just had pick swap to be able to acquire him. But by taking him on, you put Ty's Howard out of position, and, uh, and it's just led to ramifications since then. But going back to the 2018 draft class, I don't like this game necessarily because like this woulda, coulda, shoulda thing doesn't mean a whole lot uh, in the moment. But in the second round, after Sharping and Johnson Jr., they went back to back. They got yep. the other second round pick from the Dwayne Brown trade, which really kind of started this entire you know collapse in the Houston Texans. You know, it was the the dark portal of hell that they opened up. But the Chiefs took Nico Hardman 56. The Eagles took Arcega Whiteside 57. The Cowboys took Tristan Hill, 58th. Paris Campbell, 59th to the Colts. Nasir Adderley, 60th to the Chargers. The Rams took Taylor Rapp. 
The Cardinals took Andy Isabella 62nd. The Chiefs took Juan Thornhill 63rd. And the Seahawks took Metcalf 64th. And like you're looking at, you know, one, two, three. I mean, I don't think Hardman's really a good player at all. Like he's yeah, I don't like, think he's good. He's a gadget player. But there's four good players taken after, you know, Johnson Jr., Max Sharping. And you could kind of group them into like the Tristan Hills and the Paris Campbells of the world here. Yeah, I'm looking at some of these players. Zach, Zach Allen went first overall in the third. Deontay Johnson after that. He's a Jay, nice player. Um, let's see. Yeah, I mean, I think after that, you're kind of like stuck. You know, Terry McLaurin went in the third round. Singletary in the third round. Montgomery went in the third round. Jermon Jones has been good. He went in the third round too. But, you know, it's not like they missed. Like, I mean, aside from Metcalf, this isn't supreme talent at all. Um, but like the picks are, I thought those two picks are bad then. They've been bad since then. And, like, it's the last time the Texans had a swing at really good young players, and the cabinet's been bare. And partly in sort of that is because of the decisions they made in 2018. When or 2019, the, I should say. Yeah, when you look at the life cycle of an NFL team, we're in 2021. And so the guys who were picked two and a half years ago should start to make up, like, more of a core of what your team is if you're mm-hmm. a good team doing things the right way. And that's not going to happen with this team. Like, I think there's a really good chance by. 2021 that you know i think sharping might be around but i think lonnie's gone this offseason i think that's going to be they're just going to kind of wash wash that away um i think it's year 19 20 okay so we're we're we are in you know year three with these guys heading into year four next year right yeah mm-hmm, yeah exactly yeah so we're going to be entering year four i'm gonna get my years confused yeah so and you know sharping is going to pro- pro- possibly slash probably be here but like He's not, I don't think, a part of a future of this offensive line. Titus Howard can be. And I just keep coming back to that 22. Like, Nick's, Nick Casario is going to have to figure out how to get more. Um, I, I think I was talking to my friend Paul Gallant about this because he saw what they did in New England 20 years ago when they built it up. And they did something kind of vaguely similar um, when, you know, Belichick brought in all these different, like, different veterans, different kinds of players. Obviously they, they hit on Brady, which is the huge thing, but like e- even before then, or as that was happening, they were kind of starting to build that culture. And I think mm-hmm. that that is probably what Casario had in mind as a model. But one obvious glaring difference goes back to the coach, which is when Robert Kraft hired Bill Belichick 20 years ago, not that he ever expected him to be the coach for 21 years, like he has been, but like that was a long-term solution. That wasn't like a, Hey, this yeah. guy's going to be here for two or three years. Like, and it's just how do you sign 30 guys to one year contracts when you realistically know not many of them will be back for 2022 and like your coach is a guy your head coach is somebody who is probably not going to be around in 2023 unlike Belichick 20 years ago yeah I did I did not know that at all about the Patriots during that building of the Bill Belichick era you know like I was like you know, a fat 10-year-old whenever the Patriots won their first Super Bowl. Yeah. And I was just upset because I loved the Rams and I love Marshall Falk's mouthpiece. And, you know, I loved Azir I love that offense. And all those I guys, agree. you know. And yep. I was just, like, very upset. I was like, how is this happening? I had no idea, mm-hmm. like, how that was occurring. And I still don't know to this day. Like, I haven't gone back and watched that game at all. Uh, but I didn't know about the one-year contracts at all. But it was kind of related to me. Like, aside from, like, the idea, I think, was, you know, it's a culture, turn the ball on the roster. And, the, and like, it's just so funny how low 
the bar is for this team right now. Where like David Cole admitting his wrong, admitting that he's wrong, like is paraded mm-hmm. about. It's like this is the bare minimum of like human life right now. Uh, <laughs> just Nick Casario giving Danny Amendola a one-year contract is a great thing because they didn't give him three years, nine million dollars. You know, and like the yeah. bar is so low for everybody right now too. But like one of the things that was related to me was like, well, Casario did this because. He signed a bunch of one-year contracts so he could flip them for draft picks in the season. It didn't work out. They got one draft pick out of these veterans. They got Mark Ingram for a 2024 mm-hmm. seventh-round pick. That's all they got. And, and I so, guess Shaq Lawson. Yeah, I, I guess they got that. But they still too. turn McKinney into Lawson and turn yes. Lawson into something else. So it's like you turn McKinney into a fifth-round pick. And they also restructured Lawson, which hurts their salary cap next year. Yep. Whereas if they just cut, outright cut McKinney, they would have saved more cap space for next year than they did by restructuring loss and trading him too. And so it's just like, it's little things like that didn't really match for a rebuilding team too. Yes. Well, and I think what it really boils down to, Matt, is this. When you look at the NFL standings and you kind of look at the worst teams in the league, so the Jets, the Dolphins, um, the Jags, the Texans, you know, I mean, some teams are in rough shape, like like the Giants, I think, even though they won on Sunday, have a lot of questions moving forward. Uh, The Bears, the, the Lions. I think there's a real sense that like, all these teams are ahead of where Houston is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like Jacksonville and the Jets, especially, I think feel like they are a year ahead of where Houston is because like they're starting rookie quarterbacks. They're playing a ton of young guys. And with the Texans, it's like they have an older roster. And so we're not even like to the point that those organizations are mm-hmm. like, we're not even we're, in Houston. Like we're not even to where the Jaguars are, where the jets are. I mean, maybe the lions might be sort of similar, but like, well, like they got, they got first round pick for Stafford and they like golf. Yeah, they, just those like, picks moving forward. they had yeah. to take on golf to make the trade work, you know, exactly. Like you're yes. stuck with golf for a year, but you have next, you have two first round picks next year and you're exactly. going to have a top five draft pick and then you can get your quarterback and then, you have another one later on as well, too. Yeah. Uh, the Texans are like in their own like layer of hell. Unlike yes. those other teams like you mentioned, because they have a young quarterback that you already use a high draft pick on them. They'll have additional ones that in attempt to build around them. And it, even if it doesn't work out necessarily, like they still put that into action. Whereas the Texans are like from the, the very basic building ground. And it's not even just like the quarterback position. It's the entirety of the roster, you know? Yep. It's all bones here, you know, throughout it. And like we mentioned before, there's a few players who may start for them again next year. But like all in all, like there isn't a player on here you can build a team around, build an identity around. There isn't a position group here that you can like build an entire scheme around it all whatsoever either. I agree. It's basically because of the trade for Tunsil and being out the first or second round pick, it has made this year basically a, a massive waste of time, except for getting the high draft pick that they're going to get, and then maybe finding out a little bit about a Grenard or a Nico Collins. Like other than that, like they almost would have been better off not playing games this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I hate to put it in those terms, but that's like that's bi- like not having those picks in 2021. I'm going to say it again. It ruined the season. Like it made the roster situation heading into these this year, basically completely untenable. Yeah. Yeah. And we kind of text about that as well too. Like what, I'm not sure there's a point, you know, to this year at all uh, whatsoever. So like, do you think we're at the point now where we should actively root for losses? Like what else is there to, to watch for, for the entire second half of the season? Like there's still eight more games left here. Like, we games. just got past the halfway point. Yes. 
We did. I mean, I I'll put it this way. Like I I I don't think. Let's see here. So you got the bye. Then they play Tennessee. They'll lose that game. The Jets they have a chance to win. India I think they'll lose. Seattle they'll lose. Uh, at Jacksonville they could win a little more doubtful. Like I there may like, be I, two more wins here. Yeah, Unless maybe, they like they get like a they shock a team like the Jets against the Bengals last week. Tennessee in week 18 could be interesting, but Tennessee, like, man, at this point, they might, they might, they might be playing for the top seed in the AFC playoffs, even without mm-hmm. uh, Derrick Henry. So we'll see. Um, it's never a good mental frame of mind to, to root for, for losses. I've done that a couple of years. It's just like, it's a really mentally hard thing to do. So I would like, I, I would root for wins just to kind of like, I don't, it just feels better to root for wins and losses, but like you, but just don't take the games like too seriously yeah. and root for like, look for certain young guys to do certain things mm-hmm. uh, is, is kind of what I would do. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. I like, I actively rooted against the team in 2013 for the number one overall pick and they like yep. end up winning the clowning sweepstakes by being the Jaguars or losing the Jaguars on Thursday night football because Cecil Shorts had a great game against them you know yeah, like, that was fun you know that was a fun time um but like I don't know it's kind of like I just it's hard to it's you know, hard put, like a lot of juice into it you know especially without like a, a for sure number one pick next year like if it's more that- solidified we're like you're losing games for Trevor Lawrence or yeah you're losing games for Kyler Murray or like even back then you're losing games for Jadavion Clowney. Like that'd be different, but just because it's like, it doesn't feel like there's that much a difference between picking number one overall and number five overall. Uh, I, it's like, it's hard to get juiced up for it right now. Yeah. I think, I think that's fair. I think that actually kind of helps mentality wise because realistically the Texans will be picking somewhere in the top five. And I think at this point, like a lot of things can change, but it's going to be probably the usual suspects that we see picking the top five. Like it's going to be offensive tackles and pass rushers and cornerbacks. Like it'll be Kayvon Mm -hmm. Thibodeau and Aiden Hutchinson, Derek Stingley, Evan Neal, those kind of guys. And I think if I were projecting it on November 7th, when we're recording, like I think they probably end up with one of those guys, but it's not the same thing as like Reggie Bush back in 06. It's not, you know, clowny like it was in 20, uh, the 2014 draft. It's not quite the same this year. Plus, like, again, the roster just has such a long way to go at this point. Yeah, I, I don't watch college football at all until the end of the year, but I'm excited to, like, watch the draft in the sense of I can watch everything instead of just be like, yeah, they need a tier pass rusher. I'm going to watch 47 tier pass rushers this year, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like, I've been yep. pretty good, like, knowing who the Texans are going to target, knowing, like, the weaknesses on the roster. But in this case, like, yeah, I'll just watch everybody's projected in the first round and kind of go from there on as well, too. Um, well, kind of picking back off this game, also, like, there's like a string tie between the Texans and the Dolphins, and it's, you know, goes mm-hmm. with back to Laramie Tensel trade. And it continued back into, you know, this year by the Dolphins signing Brandon Scarlett, where we saw Brandon Scarlett miss a tackle on, uh, on David Johnson, which I think opened like a dark portal of hell today. But uh, and like they've kind of, and they they trade for Barger McKinney. They did the loss and trade, and so there's been like some more interminglings between the two teams too. And then it also continued back with the Deshaun Watson inklings. Uh, how real do you think the Deshaun Watson to Miami rumors were last week? I think they were real. What I can't figure out is kind of how the process went because we had these different reports about how Stephen Ross kind of came in towards the end, Miami's owner, and really wanted Watson to settle the cases, which I think makes sense from Miami's standpoint. But like. It, Matt, if these teams were talking about Watson in the last couple of months, which I imagine they were, like, why is that coming up now? Yeah. I would have figured that would have come up, you know, months ago because, uh, you know, the Watson legal stuff is tricky. But 
I'm sure an acquiring team wants him to settle those cases, even though it doesn't affect any possible criminal criminal allegations, just because they can, you know, assume his contract, then kind of introduce him in a way where you're like, okay, something like it, there's more of a resolution with all the allegations that are facing him. It's just, it's weird to me the idea that like Stephen Ross may have been granted the possibility of talking to Deshaun, may have talked to him. Uh, Deshaun doesn't want to settle the case. Like you, you would have figured this stuff was had been mm -hmm. happening. Like the last, like what, what else was going on the last in couple April. months, if, if not for this? Yeah, April. Yeah, a lot. Like, like after I, I they just, came out, had the draft. Yeah, and then Miami's faced with this weird situation where part of the reporting is that Miami wanted non-disclosure agreements as part of those settlements, which I think is wildly out of scope, and that's not their business to do that. And Chris Greer, their GM, is having answer to answer questions about that. Like, I, I don't really understand the behind-the-scenes part of it. I do think the Texans made the right decision in not trading Deshaun last week by the deadline uh but the back the background of it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me yeah i agree with that too like i think they did the right thing by not trading him because you have to know what the draft picks are worth and we've been saying this for you know i guess april like five six months now you know you have to know what you're getting you can't trade deshaun watson for the 21st overall pick you have to make sure you get top 10 top five pick and also i do think like the value you can get for him is only going to increase next offseason than right now where more teams have bad off seasons, more teams, more teams have bad seasons, more teams have a great desire for quarterback play, and so on and so forth. And also, like once you get into next draft cycle, and there's not a clear cut number one overall quarterback, or like they're all kind of batched together, you know, like, I can get a top five franchise quarterback, and that's worth you know three first round picks. And if he's suspended, it may not be until 2022 if he is at all. And we've seen you know happen over and over in the NFL where or in sports in general, like if a guy has a criminal situation at all, once he starts playing well, kind of like teams don't really care that much. After it fades that. away. You know, it fades away pretty quickly. And so I think it just opens the door where they can get a greater value for him next year too, unless Miami just offered something you know, incredible. Uh, are there any, aside from draft picks, where the Dolphins, by trading up for Waddle, kind of hurt themselves, I think, for getting Watson next year too. Um, are there any players that you watch today or watch on Miami this year that interest you in a future Watson Miami trade? That's a good question. Uh, I've always liked Mike Jasicki. I know he's not gonna not a blocker at all, but I've always just enjoyed his pass catching ability. I like him as a player. Um, yeah, he's like a healthy Hunter Henry. Yeah, that's a good better way to put hands it. too. Yeah, I like him. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about guys who are like really younger players. Um, who else would I like? I'd love Javon Holland as somebody, but I don't know if that's somebody they'd include in a trade. Um, you know, I think about some of that, you know, I, maybe you buy low on some players who haven't worked out for them, like an Austin Jackson, somebody like that. Um, but this kind of illustrates how hard it is to trade a player like Deshaun is that when you really come, like, I actually think Carolina has a bunch of players mm -hmm. that kind of fit in this category because they have some guys on defense and I'm like, man, if I can get my hands on some of those guys, uh, like a Derek Brown, a, you know, a Shaq Thompson, a Jeremy Chin, I'm like, now I can start to like really build something defensively, mm -hmm. a, a Brian Burns, uh, Miami seems to have fewer of those players. Candidly, do you like? Uh, who would you like from Miami? Yeah, from a player I, standpoint. I think so too. Like, I think Holland could be a starting, you know, single high safety. Uh, I like Phillips as like a three-four outside linebacker because yeah, he's good. He's good against the run, and yeah. that's and like playing this defense that they have now. We really haven't seen him kind of against the run at all either. I like Van Ginkle because he makes a lot of plays, and like you know, he's kind of like a, a secondary player in a good front seven. I don't really buy like taking on Howard Byron Jones at all. For this season's yeah, life cycle, and you're going to flip them for another draft pick, you know. 
Um, like Ogba's been their best pass rusher this year, but he's a little bit older already too. Raquan Davis is a good nose tackle and like stopping the run, but not much of a pass rusher. You know, as well either. But I think like looking, I think it's like it's Holland, it's Phillips. Waddle's perfect for Tua, which is weird. Like if they do make the Watson <laughs> trade, I think you kind of would, they may trade you know Waddle as well too, um, because it doesn't maybe necessarily match so much with Watson's skill set in a way. But he's like a good like first down, you know, quick pass receiver too. But I think like those three guys are kind of the big ones, where it's Waddle, Phillips, and Holland, probably their best young players available. Yeah, Hunt's uh, a really good guard too. Um, if you win an offensive lineman, that deal. Yeah, I would say that. So the way that John McLean has reported that what the Texans want, it's been the whole three first round picks plus, you know, basically a combination of like two seconds or veteran players. I imagine hopefully what it looks like will be, you know, three first round picks, like a second and then they'll like pick one or two players that they like from an opposing roster. I think that's, you know, knock on wood what that trade should realistically look like. Mm-hmm. Um but it's just it's hard to find young good players on these teams that you would really want and have the other team actually be willing to trade that player as well. Yeah. My my personal favorite team is still the Giants because they have the Bears draft pick. So you get two first round picks will be like okay. your know, fringe top ten and then, you know, I don't know, like whatever else you want to do from there. Like you get Aziz Alanjari, get another second round pick. But I think two first round picks around the top ten, like that in itself may be worth a Watson trade considering everything else going on. And I do think Watson will open the door to more teams too after sitting out for an entire year. The Giants may clean house, you know, after the season as well mm-hmm. too. Maybe you take a flyer on Daniel Jones and say like, well, we have a new offensive coordinator and we give him a better offensive structure. Maybe he can have like a Ryan Tannehill sort of, you know, resurgence for just like a better coach team because Jason Carrot's been, you're doing a terrible job there for the last year and a half. And so the Giants are my personal favorite landing spot for Watson if so, all those variables click exactly in place. All right, so if the Giants end up with two top 10 picks, you feel like that would be more worth it for you as opposed to like three first-rounders from Miami? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, also, and also Miami, too, you get the Niners first-round pick this year. You which could the, be pretty high. Yeah, it could be. And then you get the Niners first-round pick next year, and then you get Miami's first-round pick next year as well, too. And like yeah, I would rather have two top ten picks this year than have like three first round picks in the future, you know, with all those variables attached to it. I might go the opposite way, just depending on how I thought about the quarterbacks. Because to me, like for oh, example, I see what you're saying. Well, like if you're the Eagles this year, you might have three first round picks. But the problem is, okay, it's great to have those, but if you don't have a quarterback, you almost would love to like push one or two, one of them, let's say back to the next year and have two first round picks to where like you might be able to trade up for one or something like that. So I, so even though like, let's say the giants hypothetical, all right, trade Deshaun for two first round picks plus some other stuff. All right. You would end up with, <laughs> you know, three top 10 players in order to, to sort of instantly jolt your roster. But I tend to think those wouldn't be, those wouldn't be quarterbacks. That's valuable in a quarterback yeah. draft. That makes I'm sense, kinda, and I guess like you could. I mean, you can always use one of those ones this year too to trade down for next year. Yeah, and you get could. First round pick if that goes well, um, too. But I just think like the lack of young talent here is so obvious and it's yeah. so glaring that anything you can get like a year sooner to kind of jumpstart the rebuild sure. is something I think like the fans want in general, and I think it'd be good for the team in general having three top ten first round picks in this year's draft. Whereas like you're way you're kicking things down the road for a little bit longer. I'm wondering what they what they're going to do a quarterback moving forward here, because like, is it crazy to think that 
they might be back in 2022 with the exact same quarterbacks minus Jeff Briscoe. Is that crazy to think about? It could happen, you know. Right? I like, because, I didn't I didn't like Davis Mills in Stanford. I didn't like him in the preseason. I didn't mm-hmm. like him this year. You have been very like adamant about that. I think they did a bad job with Davis Mills this year, and they sent him to fail to a large extent too. But like, I don't think he's going to be more than a backup. And so I think maybe you trade Tyrod Taylor out for somebody else, and then you go to their camp battle. But yeah, I could very well see the same two guys again next year. But I'm also like afraid of Jimmy Garoppolo. I'm afraid of any sort of like quarterback who's average or slightly below average coming here too. I'm wondering what they're going to – what I'm intrigued by this quarterback class in 2022 is that, like, I don't I don't see how any team is going to be able to look at these guys and convince themselves to take somebody in, like, in the first couple of picks. I, I just can't imagine that. Like, that's really hard for me to imagine. But you look it, at some it of these It happens guys, every year, though. It, it does, but I just, like, if you're the Lions, like yeah. – Like, I just – I like, you're, you watch, like, for example, on, on Saturday, Ole Miss and Liberty played each other. And like I think Matt Corral has something to his game. Uh, Malik Willis struggled through a couple of picks. Like I just I can't imagine using the number one overall pick in the draft with some really good football players on one of those players. Mm-hmm. What I'm curious about though, like the, the 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 Lions are in this spot. The Texans will probably be in this spot where they'll they have multiple first rounders. I wonder what they think of guys like you know what Kenny Pickett's doing uh, in ACC play for Pittsburgh. I know you don't watch much much college, but he's a guy who like has had a million starts, unlike a lot of the guys coming out recently, has played a lot and is putting up huge numbers. Um, Brennan Armstrong from Virginia, Sam Hartman from Wake Forest, like guys who, and I, I have, again, I have, I'm just throwing out random names, not random, but like guys who are putting up like really big numbers who are passing a lot, who have had a lot of starts in their college career. Do these organizations who really need quarterbacks, the Lions, the Eagles, the Texans think like, all right, Let's take a shot because historically this almost never works, but like let's take a shot on a guy late first round mm-hmm. or second round just to kind of give ourselves another like roulette chip at the position to see if like maybe we can hit on this guy and not have to use up a lot of capital moving forward to end up with a quarterback. Um, so I so let me simplify what I just said to say I don't think a team like the Texans or the Lions will use their first pick on a quarterback. I'm wondering, though what they think about using their second or third pick in this draft on one of these guys, because I think there will be a bunch available. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I mean, it's, I think you're better off doing that. Um, like getting like a for sure, like foundational player, than run the risk at quarterback because the Texans again are in a spot where they have so many holes, you know, yes. they're not like a quarterback away at all whatsoever, where they have to draft a need. They can just draft best player available you know, for the next two years and go from there and then also see what type of quarterback they need to fill out the rest of their team. Like the only risk that you run those, you're kind of the Colts where you have a great draft, you have young talent, you're in a good spot. And now you're just switching up the quarterback position year after year because you never really kind of filled that out after you boot Andrew Luck off the stage, you know, and like that's yeah. the risk, but I'm not really worried about that for the Houston Texans though. Yeah. I, I think the Colts have their own version of misery going on. I know that Wentz played well against the Jets, um, and I know that his numbers look pretty this year. Uh, I'm guessing you'll agree with me on this. Like the interception I, streak, the not interception streak was one of the funniest things ever. It's like just yeah, watch like, the, You can watch the games. Like that's what yeah. I, how I feel a lot of times. Like reading stuff about football, or like going on you know Twitter. I'm like, 
You know you could just watch football. Like you can <laughs> yeah. watch Carson Wentz throw dropped interception after dropped interception. It's uh-huh. not that difficult to do, yes. you know? And that was one of those things. Uh, yeah, and, and like you can watch him play against the Jets on Thursday and be like, okay, yeah, their offense scored a million points. Like I, I'm not going to say he didn't play well. He played well. But you look at this and you're like, it's not going to look anything like this against a really good team in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's going to be completely different. And I almost wonder if like they're in their own little version of misery where they're like, we have a good GM. You know, I kind of make fun of him on Twitter sometimes. Yeah, he's they have a good, He had one good like, draft he, class. And I think yeah, he, I mean, he – the yeah, rumor's think, always been that he like talks to media guys and said sure. because of that he gets you know uh, uh, gets blown up some you know yeah and I I think he's a good GM maybe not a great one but like they have a nice roster a good roster I think they have a good head coach but like they're in their own version of misery where like I maybe they don't realize this but I I just don't think Carson's gonna get it done uh, in the playoffs in big games they're probably gonna get. They're probably going to end up giving up that first round pick for him. They have to keep Wentz around for 2022. And so that's another one. Well, they have like the op, not the opposite problem of the problem of the Texans, but they have their own issue where like the roster can win, but I don't think they have the right quarterback. Yeah, they're the 2016 Texans. And also, they deserve it, too, for booing Andrew Luck when he retired. Like whatever happens to the quarterback position, they should be cursed forever. That's a great um, take for the way that went, too. And so I love watching (laughs) the, the Colts fail like that, too. So we've been talking for a while. We'll end tonight's show with some existential questions that we have here from uh, a variety of Texans fans. And all these are like, you know, kind of just get down in the dumb stuff. The first one is from what are opinions? He asked, why should anyone consume any Texans content until Eastman company are gone? I think, well, if he says, if he's asking content by like, what you guys do or what's written about or talk about, I think the content's actually interesting. I think the games are less interesting Mm -hmm. because so I remember in college, this is in 2005, um, my friend Jeff Tabiri, who was running the talk show staff at WAER in Syracuse, Jeff now works for NPR in North Carolina. And he asked us this question, Matt. He goes, where is the hardest, where is the hardest city to do a talk show on Monday? Like, where's the hardest city in the country to do a talk show? And I was like 19 at the time, so I'm like, I don't really know. I can't I can't exactly think like I grew up listening to New York City stations like I don't know what's hard. He was like the hardest place to do a talk show on Monday in the country is Indianapolis because the Colts have just gone from eight. No to nine or no. And the whole concept was like, what the hell do you say? Like, yeah, the team's really good. in the Super Bowl mm-hmm. team, but Like what on Monday, like on a random Monday after they go from eight, no, or nine, no, or seven, no, say, no, whatever it was like, what are you going to say differently that day <laughs> compared to all the other wins? Right. Like mm-hmm. we all want to see wins eventually, but I actually think like the, the Texans situation, like I find myself consuming a bunch of content because I think the situation is very interesting to talk about the games themselves. Yes. Are definitely difficult to watch. So that's the way I'd frame my answer. Yeah. I like that a lot. And like, I don't know. It's kind of fun. Like it's fun. I don't know. Like writing is fun, Gerald. Like I just like to write. But yeah, it's like it's fun to write whenever things are, I guess, like stupid, you know. And <laughs> yeah. uh, and like the stupid parts fun, and when they're good, it's fun. It's it's just harder to watch the actual team whenever yes. they're this bad, you know. But like, the reading and the writing parts, I think, more fun than the game itself. And like I've committed myself to watching every Texans All Twenty Two game this year, and yeah. like I'm halfway through. After this, you'll be halfway through. And last week was, I almost didn't do it. Like, it was just like the same thing from previous <laughs> weeks. But at least now I get to look forward to why they can't pick up the blitz. Uh, I'm, I'm going to write a piece on the 2019 Texans draft class probably for, you know, next week after the bye. 
I get to write about these turnovers or watch the turnovers and things like that. It's like, at least this week, there's some fun things to look forward to in a very stupid yeah. game, you know? <laughs> yeah. Last, last week, nothing at all. Yeah, because last week, it's like, okay, you, you sort of feel like the Rams should be able to hit 10 yards on every play they run against this team. Like that's kind of mm-hmm. how it felt like well, there were some, there were some new wrinkles to this one. Yeah. Last week is the coverage is bad. The pass protection is bad. Philip Gaines is an all pro now. Every, they tried every run play. <laughs> none of it worked. The, they're running the same five routes for Davis Mills. That doesn't work at all. Uh, they have like two good pass rushes once the backups went in. And like, I didn't even watch like after they were at 38 to zero, you know, I'm like, I'm not watching a preseason game at that point. <laughs> the next question is from at Shandy Ben, Shandy Ben, have we reached rock bottom yet? I'm going to say no. I wish I could say yes. No, I, I, I don't think rock bottom arrives until uh, week 18 arrives. Like, I think that rock bottom is going to be the next two months of football and then you will start to maybe see a, maybe see like a slight sliver of sunshine as far as what the Watson trade is going to look like in terms of compensation and what they do with their draft picks. But I don't think they have reached like a pure rock bottom yet. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that too. And I mean, what we we talked about like a lot on the show and the website, like in general, like there's no bottom to anything, you know. And like it's funny because like oh, I God. learned that term. Uh, you're reading the Old Testament like a year and a half ago, you know, like you read these parables like, yeah, this can mean this or mean this or mean this. And like, there's no ending to all the meanings you can get from this story. You know, uh, there's no bottom to it. And like one of the things I've learned about the Texans from that is that there's no bottom to the misery of the Houston Texans. So we haven't reached it there. And every single time that you think that you have reached the bottom, there's another stair you can go down. And it's like, we thought we reached it after the Watson trade request. And even then that wasn't the bomb because the allegations mm-hmm. came out and maybe Watson gets suspended, you know, at the end of this year and he's suspended for all of 2023 and now they can't get anything for him and it can always get worse. You know, it can get better, but usually it gets worse for the Texans. Fair. Uh, the, ne- the next question here is from at Stephanie G 1969. She said, I am still watching what's wrong with me. Can it be cured? I'm somebody who like I almost never turn off my teams. Uh, I just like it, there's a, well when you're going through a bad season, there's a sense of like communal like all right, I gotta suffer through this and so it's gonna like one day. Yeah, and, and like it's gonna make me a stronger person and like I can't look away. I, I I've only turned off games like I think I turned off a Michigan Rutgers game last year when when like they were Michigan was playing terribly and then <laughs> I watched like a couple of like shows uh, episodes of a TV show that I that I flipped it back on they like won in triple overtime. Uh, so I am rarely the kind of person who turns things off. I just, yeah, I think, I mean, obviously a lot of people have checked out of this. Um, I think it's probably harder to avoid football games than like, you know, NBA games or Mm -hmm. baseball since they're so frequent, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't blame you for continuing to watch. It's harder to go to the game because that's like a whole commitment. But watching, all you have to do is just click one button on your remote, essentially. Yeah, and sit there for three and a half hours. It's hard whenever the weather's as nice as it is today. Good point. And points. you're like, yeah, I could do this or this or this or whatever else. Yeah, I mean, like, I even think, too, like, there was a question, was today the worst game of all time? And I want to read no. you this because the second half was interception, interception, punt, punt, field goal, fumble, Punt, punt, fumble, punt, end of game. And that's beautiful. You know, like the worst Texans game I think ever watched was the game after Halloween 2016 when they played the Lions and they won like 10-6 because you're like, yeah, yeah this is a really good defense. The Lions can't throw the ball and like there's nothing to really watch. It's just multiple three and outs by both sides, you know. But I think this is like a very fun and beautiful game. 
And like the stupid part of it, you know, is kind of part of the joy. It's just harder whenever they play, you know, the Titans or the Rams or a really good team. But whenever they get to play the Jets, that's going to be a blast. When yep. they get to play the Jaguars again, that's going to be a great time. But yeah, this is fun. And like, I always kind of enjoy the stupid ones too. Yeah, I think this one was. This is not. People keep asking, like, what is what is not just what is rock bottom? Like, is this the worst game in Texans history? And I keep saying, like, no. And, and this game was like far from that. Like, this, this was kind of funny in its own weird, weird way. It's like even if you're watching a game like Sunday, it's like you look at these weird people who are like in the, in the stands for the Dolphins with these masks on and these, these like getups, and I'm like. You guys walking here at one in seven after having high expectations this year. Like, how do you, how do you yeah. look at yourself in the mirror and walk into that stadium looking like that? Dear God. I like the uh, Chua is our guy sign behind. Oh my God. Like, like a nine year old has. Like, I'm sorry, God. buddy. Like, that, that depresses me. What a bad father. <laughs> you can't be allowing that much hope, you know? He can't That's stay. I, I kind of like Tua. He just can't stay healthy at all. Like, he throws yeah. like six routes really well. And like he's he's kind of like quirky, being left handed and that sort of thing too. But yeah, what a terrible father allowing your son to to take That's that a, game to the stadium. That is your best take of this podcast. Yeah, it's 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 what happens whenever you get a little more uh, curmudgeonly as well too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- this t- today was fun. I'm excited for the Jets Jaguars games. The rest of the games can kick it. The last question was from at Confused Lefty. Uh, he said, "Do you think ex- you think attendance is going to be worse going forward? And if so, how bad could it get?" Um, I think it'll continue to get worse. Let me look at some of these, uh, some of the home games they have left. So the Texans are going to play the Jets at home, but you know, I mean, the crowd. I will wish be... I could go that one. That'd be a fun one. I actually wish I could go too. I'm actually in Florida because that's the a couple days after Thanksgiving. So I, I wish I could go to that game too. Uh, Indi- like the problem that they have is they're going to have three home games in a row, which for a bad team is is that's a bad thing to have so many home games in a row. And so I imagine like the Seattle game might have a lot of people from Seattle mm-hmm. going. Um, like tickets are seven bucks. Yeah. We'll be there. That charger game could be kind of weird because the chargers have no fans. So like Mm -hmm. they're not going to have anyone travel here. Uh, but yeah, I could see some pretty empty buildings against Seattle on December 12th. And that day after Christmas against the chargers, especially. Yeah. I would have gone to the chargers game because I'm going to go to one game this year, but it being after Christmas made it impossible. But I'm excited to go to the week 18 times game when, you know, there's 7,000 people there. (laughs) Yeah, that should be fun. Uh, and his last question was, which players could the Texans focus on overpaying for two seasons to build a culture around be the new face of the franchise? And like, I just, it's so far in advance. And the thing yeah. about free agency in the NFL too, like you look at free agents next year and usually they're not free agents next year. Guys get re-signed, they get traded. Um, and also guys get cut a lot also. So you have a free agent pool that really doesn't materialize at all until like the beginning of March too. So I don't really have anybody at all for that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I would need to look at exactly who is available. Um, and we don't know, like, you, you know, who's going to be re-signed, as you mentioned. I, I, I don't think that te- I'm kind of curious philosophically, Matt, like, are the Texans because the implication in that question is like, are they going to overpay for somebody for the culture? I tend to think they will not. But I'm curious, like, do they target one to two to three guys who are legitimate signings that they could possibly get? Um, mm-hmm. because like sign I guys for three years, $15 million instead yeah, of one year, $2 million. Exactly. Like they sign people and you're like, okay, this guy could be part of, again, the next Texans team that actually plays an important game. I'm curious if they choose uh, to do that because then that gives you a window into like, uh, what they're thinking moving forward. Yeah. And like, that's the good thing about signing an offensive lineman. You can expect like a longer level of continuity there. Same thing with like defensive linemen and linebackers sure. too. And it's so like, I would think there'd be something along those lines if they do 
uh, kind of put more of an impact into actually signing longer term players also. One of the funniest things too about this season, I think, is they signed you know twelve linebackers, and it still wasn't enough this year. Yeah. Like they had to bring in Eric Wilson, they had to sign other guys. I like how Hardy Nickerson was uh, inactive today. It was yes. like elevated from the practice squad. That even all after all those linebackers, all fifteen that we joked about, it still wasn't enough this year either. Yep, it's uh, it's about getting through the next eight games at this point in, in one piece, essentially. Yeah, it, it's kind of, and it's also fun in that extent too. But one of the things I always say though is like, even the Texans are bad, football is really good, and so at least like the rest of the season's been great, even though the Texans yeah. are here at the bottom of it. I think that's fair. the The NFL, I think, has had a solid year, and a lot of the primetime games have been good. So we hope that continues. Yeah, I'm still bummed out about Jameis going down. I'm bummed I about Derrick Henry. I'm also upset that the the Broncos defense has been as bad as it's been until today, and Teddy's like a top ten quarterback now, and it doesn't matter at all. Uh, those <laughs> things are hard, you know. But the rest of it's been good, though. Yeah, I agree with you. Um. So, anyways, that's our show for tonight. We'll be back on later this week. We'll either do a mailbag podcast or do a, another preview podcast entering the bye week for you. Uh, but Mike, what do you have going on right now? Do you have anything that we should be looking forward to this yeah, week or the see. upcoming weeks? Yeah, let me plug it. Let me let's see here. Let, let's pull up my schedule on Sirius XM. So I think I'm on a couple times this week. Let me see here. When when am I on? All right. I am on. Let's see. I'm on Thursday. OK, I think the next show I have is Thursday, the 11th. So what 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 is a Thursday night game that we have this week? I haven't even it's looked at Ravens. OK, Dolphins, Ravens, Dolphins. Yeah. So I'll be leading people in uh, into that game. And then in, in, in the first half as well, I'll be on Mad Dog Sports Radio, which is channel 82 uh, on. If you have Sirius XM, it is channel 82 on there. So I'll be on Thursday and then I'm on actually next Sunday. I'll be doing I'm in for a guy, JT, the brick, which is like a later show. I remember that guy when yeah, I was a J- kid growing up, I would listen to him. Yep. So I, I'm in for JT next Sunday night from 10 to 1 a.m. Central Time. So Thursday uh, in the early evening, like six to nine, and then next Sunday as well. So you can catch my stuff on Mad Dog Sports Radio on Channel 82 on Sirius XM. That's exciting. I remember listening like JT the Brick as a Kim. Like this is really aggressive. I was like, is yeah, this he's the way it's like to be an adult. I was like, this doesn't sound like very much fun at all. The funny thing, the funny thing these days is like I, I try to do like as, as little COVID-19 talk as possible. But like <laughs> JT does like so much. And I say this in, in like a kind way. He does so much like COVID and vaccine conversation that once the Rogers thing broke this past this past week, like I was on the air that night, like the day we found out about Rogers. And I was like, I told the audience, I'm like, I cannot wait until we get until we hear from JT because he is going to be so angry at this <laughs> that what, I, he, I really enjoy that. that? Hmm? Did he fulfill those expectations? He absolutely fulfilled it, yes. I'll see if I absolutely. can pull that up on YouTube. You want to <laughs> yeah, hear I'll my Aaron Rodgers take real fast before we end tonight? My Aaron Rodgers take? You want to hear mine? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I think he knew everybody was going to be really upset with him, and yeah. he just said everything he could say to make people even angrier, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's By, right. like, yeah. referencing Joe Rogan, who you know, a lot of people <laughs> on the internet don't like, you know, by uh, talking about the 500 pages of research that he had, by wearing the uh, the tombstone shirt and you know yep. Val Kilmer's a character died tuberculosis at 36 and being 37 and coming out of it and being okay, I think it's like, look, you know, I kind of lied here. I didn't want to get the vaccine. 
Uh, I'm a same allergic. I'm just going to say everything I can do everything yes. I can to make people as angry as possible. And he did exactly <laughs> that. And yeah, everybody hit, fell for it. He hit like the anti-vax bingo, basically. It was like research, Joe Rogan, uh, <laughs> alternative treatments, cancel culture, the woke mob. Be- like he all did the, beautiful he, hit, he hit bingo on all of them. Yeah, I love. I think he did a perfect job uh, executing yes. what he wanted to do, you know. And it's I also the fair. personality of Aaron Rodgers also. Yes, very fair. Well, that's our show for tonight. I'll, uh, I'll talk to you later, Mike. Thank you for listening to Battle Red Radio, and thank you for being on again. Thank you so much. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.